appreciate and need those reminders of these wonderful gospel truths. We've really sung through the gospel this morning with our immortal, invisible God, and then considering our own pride and sinfulness, but what Christ has done in spite of that, and then our response that we would spend our life in giving everything to Christ and that we would walk worthy of Him. Um, we're going to talk a lot today about excusing sin in our lives and that tendency that we have to do that. But let's just say right up front that all that wonderful, amazing grace and forgiveness that we've been singing about, that is available to us. And the fact is that sometimes we do excuse sin and we do mess up, but yet God is still faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So keep that firmly in mind as we go through today. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. By this time in our study of Romans, we've seen the magnificent, sin-forgiving grace of Christ, that Christians are freed from sin's guilt and sin's penalty. And as uh, Andy Gleiser was preaching for us a couple weeks ago, he got into chapter 6, which begins with the, the question that in, in light of the amazing grace that God has given us, how should we live? Should we sin? Because after all, grace is an incredible thing. And if grace is the way I get sin, or, or sin is the way I get grace in some ways, or kind of opens me up to God's grace, we could say, then why not keep sinning? Like, that's, that's what Paul is going to address here in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 6. And, and Andy got us into that uh, a couple weeks ago. And so what we'll find in our text today is that we're going to continue to unfold that argument. And uh, that we should not continue in sin, that grace may abound, because we have new identity in Christ. So let's begin by reading together this passage. And I would encourage you, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, but notice how, as, as we go through these verses, how Paul argues that pursuing sin as a Christian is bizarre and downright unthinkable. Let's begin in verse 1, though we'll be focusing on 3 to 11 in a few minutes. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We'll pray in just a moment after I blow my nose. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this incredible text. Thank you for the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to you. Open our eyes right now, and it's in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine 
for a moment that your Friday night, long week, you finally sit down and you go to the freezer and there it is, the giant bowl of cookie dough ice cream. <laughs> and you get, you get your, your bowl of ice cream, you sit down, you watch a show or the Red Sox or something like that and you just, you pound the ice cream, it's been a long week. And then something weird happens. A little voice inside you says, I could kind of go for a little more. <laughs> Purely hypothetical, to be clear. Uh, and in that moment, your, your internal lawyer begins its, to present its case. Well, you know, you had a really long week. You know, you really, you know, after all, ice cream isn't actually that bad for you compared to, to, to other desserts. Uh, and then the, the, the trump card of all, you'll work out in the morning. You know, it'll, it'll cancel all the calories that, that, you've, that you've ingested. Case closed. <laughs> you eat the extra ice cream. And in that moment, you know, a fairly innocent example here, but you've excused what, in, in the sake of our illustration, was probably not best by saying that, oh, there's, there's something coming that will cancel out what I do. The workout, namely. And as silly as that may seem, I fear that that's often what we do in our own lives. We excuse sin in our own lives. We say, you know, I am kind of tired right now. I, I'm, I'm kind of sick of fighting this. I don't have the strength for this. I'm hungry. Whatever the excuse is. And then the particular excuse that Paul has in our passage here is, after all, that I can always appeal to a sin-canceling activity, if I can put it that way. Namely, that God's grace will forgive me. And in church, it might seem kind of silly to say, oh, I, you know, I'm going to sin so that, I, I wouldn't sin so that, you, oh, I'll get more grace later. That may seem kind of silly right now, but how many times in the heat of temptation do we say, you know, I've sinned how many times? What's one more? We treat it callously. Paul in Romans 6 addresses this excuse for sin head on, that, if, that we think that if grace is so great, why not sin more? Paul is going to say, by no means, in verse 2, as we saw a few weeks ago. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, when we're talking about sin, we're talking about any thought, desire, action, word, or attitude that goes against God's law. And what is God's law? Well, Jesus says you could summarize all of God's law by love for God and love for people. So fundamentally, sin is any lack of love for God and lack of love for others. And so as we go through this morning's sermon, I encourage you to ask yourself, what sins in my life do I tend to excuse? What, what are those moments where I am either doing something that is expressly against what God has said or that is showing that I don't really love him like I think I ought to or I know I ought to? What sins do I tend to excuse and what excuses for sin do I tend to make? Because we're really good at making excuses, even from the Garden of Eden. Well, it was the serpent. Well, it was the woman, as Adam says. We give these excuses. So in our passage this morning, Romans 6, 3 through 11, we'll see three reasons why we need to combat sin in our lives rather than excuse it. And all three of these reasons really unpack just this one key idea, and that is that new life in Christ makes excusing sin unthinkable. It, it, it makes uns, the, the new life that we have, because we are united to Christ as Christians, makes excusing sin something that is utterly bizarre, not something that we can just indulge in for fun. 
And so let's look at these, as we unpack this idea of new life in Christ and how this means we shouldn't excuse sin, let's look at verses 3 through 5. These, these verses give us our first reason that we shouldn't excuse sin, and that is that baptism demonstrates new life. Baptism demonstrates new life. Verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If I had asked you before we read this, why shouldn't I sin as a Christian? Uh, why shouldn't I make excuses for sin? There would be lots of good biblical answers. But I know for me, the first answer I wouldn't think of is baptism. <clears throat> what does that have to do with anything? Why is he talking about baptism here? He hasn't really talked about baptism up to this point in the letter. It's not a big theme throughout the letter. And yet here in verses 3 and 4, and, and a little bit in, in verse 5, I think it's connecting to verse 4. We'll talk about that. Um, but in verses 3 through 4, he's talking about baptism. Okay, so what's this all about? Well, he says, let's look at it. Verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So when he's writing to the Romans, he's, he's writing to the church in Rome, and he's saying all of us who have been baptized into Christ. He's assuming that there is some sort of baptism that has taken place because they are Christians. That's a natural assumption that Paul makes. He hasn't been there yet. He says all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Now that's an interesting phrase. We've been baptized into Christ, and he talks about being united with Christ. And so the, the question that we, we start to wonder is, is this teaching that baptism saves, that it regenerates us? Because if we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. That's what the verse says. If I can borrow Paul's language, by no means. <laughs> How do we know that? Well, whenever we encounter a passage that at first glance kind of makes us cock our head and say, well, what is he talking about here? I find it very helpful to ask myself the question, what is he not saying? And how do I know he's not saying that? Well, in this case, Paul, we, we could compare lots of, we can mention lots of verses, right? We could go to Ephesians 2 and say, it's by grace you're saved through faith, not of works. So it's not, a, baptism does not save you. We could go there. But even just in this letter to Romans, it's very clear that Paul is not saying that by going into the water that that somehow wipes your slate clean. How do we know? Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who is baptized. No, that's not what it says. For everyone who believes. So right in the first chapter, Paul is saying that it's about faith. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our problem. We've sinned, we fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. But we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So that's the gift that we've been given. But how do you receive the gift? Is it through baptism? No, Paul says in Romans 3, it is to be received by faith by trusting in what Christ has done. That is the only way that we can experience a right relationship with God. So if I were to ask you the question, how do you know that God will accept you when you die? If baptism is near the front of your tongue at that point, if it's on the tip of your tongue, well, I was baptized at this age, then 
we need to be very, very careful because the scriptures teach us that it is only by faith that we are accepted into God's presence. And so I ask you the question, have you ever trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you ever experienced and received that gift by turning away from your sin and by trusting in Jesus Christ? So if baptism into Christ, as he says, isn't baptismal regeneration, being saved by being baptized, then what is it? Is it just spiritual? Is, it, is, he, is he not referring to uh, physical baptism at all? I, I don't think so. Some people do think that here, but the text doesn't explicitly say that. He just says, baptized, baptized, baptized. Now, he, he, he clearly is talking about these spiritual realities that are going on, because he talks about unification with Christ in verse 5. But he doesn't, but there's unification that baptizing, baptism is picturing. So he's keying on the imagery of baptism is, is, is what's going on here. And I think if we're going to try to understand what is this all about, it's important to remember that in the early church, there wasn't really a category for non-baptized Christians. Baptism and faith, though they are distinct, and I just tried to make that really clear, though they're distinct, they're very tightly linked together in the New Testament. We see this, for instance, in Acts 2.38, where Peter's preaching, and Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a close linking there. Of, he kind of takes it in one snapshot of, if you repent, what's the logical next step? You'll be baptized. And just a few verses later, we see this, the response to Peter's sermon. This is in Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized. So there's a reception of God's word that happens, and then there is the baptism that occurs after that. So for Paul, Paul seems to represent the entire conversion experience through baptism. He's using it as a picture. He's using it to demonstrate something, because baptism, after all, is the outward expression of our inward transformation. It's, think of it like, uh, you know, the member of a, of a baseball team in the, in the MLB. You know, you, uh, they might say, you know, ever since I put this jersey on, I've been part of this team. Well, is he saying that literally, not part of the team, part of the team? No, it, it's not saying that that's the exact moment of being part of the team. It was when he signed the contract and, and agreed to join the baseball team. That's when he became part of the baseball team. But at the same time, putting on the jersey is the inevitable result of joining the team, right? And the flip side of that would be that it would be unthinkable to say you're on the team and never put on the jersey. So we could say that baptism is not the cause of new life for the Christian. It's not what gets you on the team, as it were. But it is the inevitable result and the visible demonstration of that new life. So when Paul says we are baptized into Christ, he seems to be using that as a shorthand for the entire conversion experience since baptism is such a vivid picture of what happens to us when we come to faith. Let's keep on looking in verse 3 here. He says that this baptism, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So he says twice the same thing, essentially, that our baptism reveals, demonstrates, even embodies something about our union with Christ, that we have died with him. Paul's saying that baptism declares Christ's death, 
is my death. Just as Christ went down into the waters of death, so too I have died. I've died to sin. Sin had a vice grip on my soul. It was my master. But since I have been united to Christ in his death by faith, then I now am dead to sin as well. As a, as a side note, this is one reason why our church, as a Baptist church, practices baptism by immersion. Because if you think of the imagery of being baptized and being buried with him, as Paul says in verse 4, there's a, that impl- being buried implies a complete disconnect. Someone who's in the ground and buried does not have anything to do with the former life. And so when we baptize by immersion, we are showing that there is a death that occurs, there's a baptism, a going under the waters of death, as it were, and that shows a total disconnect with our previous life. Again, it doesn't make the previous life, but it pictures that vividly. And so that's why, uh, that's one reason anyway, why we, why we pursue baptism in that way. And similarly then, as we get to this next point, when you come up out of the waters of baptism, it pictures that resurrection that happens. So, looking in verse 4, what is this, is there, what's the end of this? What's the purpose of this even? Verse 4, Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, oh, that should, that should always, whenever you see a phrase like that, in order that, that should trigger something in your mind that says he's giving me a reason or a purpose or an end result, something like that. So why are we baptized into his death? For this end, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Think about that. He was once actually physically dead, but now he is risen. Jesus went down into the waters of death, but death was not the last stop on his journey. No, his death was accompanied by a resurrection to new and glorious life. And just as we share, Paul's logic goes, in Christ's death, so we also share in his new kind of life, newness of life, he says. This is why Paul's talking about baptism. Because if you have died with Christ and risen with Christ, as demonstrated in your baptism, then it's showing that you have this new life. And since sin is part of that old life, it's unthinkable that we would continue to indulge in it now that we have new life. This is further emphasized in verse 5. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In the ESV, the translation I'm using here, there's, there's a paragraph break there. And I, I think that's fair because it is, verse 5 is kind of introducing what comes next. But it also starts with the word for. And so it's looped back to what he's saying. He's saying, here's this picture of baptism. You've, you've died to sin. You're alive to God because of your unification with Christ. For, after all, if you've been united with him in a death like his, you'll certainly, definitely be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it's basically saying the same thing, just kind of in different terms. Same idea that just as you are baptized in death, you're raised to life. You're united with Christ in death. This verse gets repeated on a little bit later very similarly. Um, in verse, uh, verse number 9, uh, verse 8. Yeah, verse 8. We'll get to that in a little while. 
Um, but just notice one other thing real quick about this verse, and that is that he says, if, you've been, if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He changes tenses here. He says, we shall be united with him. So in the previous verse, he says, we walk in newness of life. So right now, we have a new kind of life. But in this verse, it seems that he's saying that, that the death of Christ also assures us of future resurrection, that one day our bodies will come out of the grave just like Christ's did. And that future hope that we have stabilizes us right now. And it ensures us that we have a future in heaven, and thus we ought to live like it. We ought to live in newness of life. As those who will be resurrected someday and who have new life even now, how can we continue to live the old life of sin? So let's make this practical. I know that was a lot of in-depth theology in these verses here. Christian, when you're tempted to make excuses for your sin, well, God will just forgive me. It's just one covetous desire. It's just one hour that I've wasted on slothfulness and laziness. It's just one word of gossip. When we're tempted to make these excuses, then remember that sin belongs to your old way of life. You're a citizen of a new kingdom. You're a member of a new team. And your baptism is a blazing, divinely ordained picture of your transfer out of the realm of sin and death into the realm of life. Now, all this begs a question, and that is, have you been baptized? If you've never been baptized, I invite you to do that because what, what you're missing is the fact that you can't look back on your baptism and use that as this, this motivation to say, no, I, I went down into the waters of death. I have, I have risen again with Christ spiritually. That has happened to me. I'm unified to him, and my baptism pictures that. But if you don't have that picture, then that, that logic doesn't, doesn't follow. Let's take this one step further, and that is that if you are baptized before you trusted in Christ as Savior, then that baptism, I think, based on this passage, is inadequate. How, why do I say that? I, say, I, I want to say this carefully. But for Paul, he's saying that the ones who are baptized are the united ones. They are the ones who have been united to Jesus. And so it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to picture something in baptism when there wasn't the thing you're picturing actually there yet. Like trying to take a picture of sunrise before the sun hasn't risen yet. And I understand that, that godly, Bible-believing, gospel-loving brothers and sisters disagree with us Baptists on this particular point of believers' baptism. That's really what we're talking about here. Um, brothers and sisters that truly believe the gospel, they don't believe that baptism saves, but they do believe that the Bible supports pre-conversion baptism. And I'm, we don't have time to go into a whole discussion about why, why they think that and this kind of thing, but with all charity and due respect to them, our church, Farmington Avenue Baptist Church, holds that passages like this one teach that uh, baptism is reserved for believers. As such, if you have not been baptized and, uh, after you've put your faith in Christ, I invite you to really prayerfully consider that. Think about what this text is saying. Think about what the scripture teaches. Talk to pastor. Talk to me. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that. All right. Verse 5. 
verse 5 says, we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, for if we've been united with him. And so that, as we said, connects and kind of solidifies his argument about baptism, but it also serves as a transition into this second reason why we must not excuse sin in our lives, but must rather combat sin in our lives. And that is this, reason number two, crucifixion dismantles old life. Crucifixion utterly tears old life apart. We see this in verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So the first question we need to ask ourselves here from verse 6 is what is this old self that he's referring to? You might have old man in your translation. It's not referring to pops. Uh, The old self, the old man. The old self that Paul's referring to is our pre-Christ self. It's the part of us that is totally permeated by sin and thus is under condemnation even to eternal death. The old self is characterized by sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about being in Adam. That would be our old self. I encourage you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 briefly, please. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this old self, and he's saying you shouldn't live like like your old self is still alive. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 22, he instructs the Ephesians to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So the, the old self has something to do with the past life. And, and furthermore, it is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's the old self, the part of you that was corrupt because of sin. He, he goes on to say in verse 24, uh, or verse 23, create, that, the, that the new self is created after the likeness of God. So therefore, if the new self is created after the likeness of God, then the old self is not like God. It's the part of us that's unlike God. Colossians 3, verse 9, shows us that the old self is characterized by lying. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you had to put off the old self with its practices. So we could kind of summarize what our old self is by saying it's our former way of living that was totally controlled by sin and thus condemned to death. It doesn't mean that every human is as bad as they could possibly be. But it does mean that every human is innately bent towards sin, towards selfishness. One commentator says that a believer's old man is the person as he was spiritually before he trusted Christ, when he was still under sin, powerless and ungodly, a sinner and an enemy of God. Old self, this is an important distinction, old self or old man does not refer to the sin nature as such. The Bible does not teach that the sin nature was eradicated in salvation or is ever eradicated in this life. So what I'm not saying is that if you're a true Christian, you don't struggle with sin anymore, in other words. Good, right? (laughs) Because otherwise none of us would be true Christians. Uh, The the old self is, is a bit different than that. Another commentator puts it this way. I think this is helpful. The old man is what we were in Adam, the man of the old age who lives under the tyranny of sin and death. As J.R.W. Stott puts it, what was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. So this is our old self, the pre-Jesus us, essentially. 
And Paul says in verse 6, we know, what do we know? We know that our old self was crucified with him. When something's crucified, it doesn't survive. It dies. In verse 7, Paul goes on to say, one who has died has been set free from sin. He doesn't say one that is on the way to death. He says that one who has died has been set free from sin. So in verse 6, when he says the old self was crucified, he's saying that that part of us, again, not our sin nature, but the part of us before Christ that was innately bent towards sin and condemned to death, that part of us died. What that means is the part of us that was condemned to death isn't there anymore. And the result of that, Paul says, is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, Becca and I were talking a lot this week, and I was, there, was just, there was so many little things that we could spend 20 minutes talking about, well, what does the body of sin mean? And all these tiny little things, and unfortunately we can't uh, go through and just drill down on every single little thing. Um, but, uh, but the body of sin, basically, to summarize, I, I believe is referring to the reign of sin in our life. It's that, it's how, and it seems to emphasize, if it's the body of sin, a little bit of an emphasis on how we use our body for sin. And Paul says that when our old self was crucified, that the body of sin is brought to nothing. That word has the idea of being abolished or rendered inoperative. So the, that part of us that is constantly driven to sin is put out of business and loses its authority because our old self has died. One translation kind of paraphrases it this way. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Why? So that sin might lose its power in our lives. I think that's really getting at what this passage is teaching. That when our old self was crucified with Jesus, through, uh, uni- we are unified to him through faith. When that happens, sin doesn't have authority over us anymore. It loses its power. And Paul says that that results in something else. So that the body of sin, this is the end of, middle of verse 6, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that, yet another result, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One commentary says, sin no longer has the legal right to force its mastery and control on a believer, for he has died with Christ. If you have died with Christ, then you are not a slave to sin. It's not your master anymore. It can't make demands of you. I had a friend at camp that I worked with who was a legendary sleeper, just like a really incredible sleeper. He, I, I, there was one time where his campers actually lifted up his bed, and, like it, and he didn't wake up. He was like that much of a heavy sleeper kind of guy. And when, when someone sleeps that heavily, what do we say about them? We say that they're dead to the world, Right? So when someone's dead to the world like that, and you can't wake them up, you're, you're pushing them, you're talking to them, you know, wh- whatever it is, uh, you, you can't, they can't respond to your requests. They're free from your demands. In the same way, or at least a similar way, <laughs> if you're dead to sin through Christ, then you are free from the demands of sin. It can, it can try to wake you up. It can try and say, hey, here's a temptation but you don't have to give in. You have the power through Jesus Christ. You are dead to that. Though sin tries to boss you around, it doesn't have any claim on you if you're a Christian. Your old self has died. And when we excuse sin in our lives, we're forgetting that. We're forgetting that the us that sin owned, the pre-Jesus us, 
that sin has been, that, that us has been crucified. As Andy put it in the, in the hymn we'll sing in a few minutes, sin's reign no longer fatal. We're not condemned to death anymore. Its power has been disabled. We possess new life. I think that's a good summary of what's happening here. So what do we do when we do sin, though? Because the fact is, despite the fact that we're free from sin, sometimes we still unbelievably choose to listen to our old master. So in that moment, we don't think that God's grace has been exhausted. We run back yet again, pleading humbly for grace, confessing our faults to him, and he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins. So though our emphasis here this morning is on that tendency that we have to excuse sins, the fact is that maybe this morning you're here and you're saying, I, I know I messed up. I know I shouldn't have. So you're just making me feel more guilty. Well, if you're feeling guilty, then look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the fact that he died for you so that you don't have to bear this anymore. Your guilt lies in his tomb. He doesn't. Baptism demonstrates new life. Crucifixion dismantles old life. But Paul gives us one more reason in our passage why we must never excuse sin in our lives, but should instead fight sin with all our being. We combat sin because resurrection demands new life. Resurrection demands new life. Look with me in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is that verse that I said is very parallel to verse 5. They're, they're saying almost the same thing, this connection that if we are united to Christ, if we have died with him, then it stands to reason that we will rise with him someday in a future resurrection. The main difference between those two verses is that in verse 5, he says we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection Whereas in verse 8, he says, we believe that. So there's a little bit of responsibility that we have with this conversation, that we have to actually grab hold of what God says and say, yes, Lord, I believe this. I believe that I am dead to sin because of what Christ has done for me. I believe that I am going to have eternal life because of Jesus. And therefore, because I have those things, I can say no to this temptation. Now, verse 8, similarly to verse 5 kind of functions as a pivot. So verse 8 says, if we've died with Christ, well, that's what we were just talking about in verses 6 through 7. Now he swings and says, we believe that we will also live with him. And so now he's going to talk about that life with Christ, resurrection life, namely. And verse 9 has this, these incredible statements that, that are, are amazing, and I'm going to read them, and I want you to think about how awesome they are, but then ask yourself, why are they here? Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Okay, so amazing truths. We could preach an Easter sermon right there. <laughs> uh, Jesus is alive, and he will not die again. But why is that there? Well, Paul will, Paul will reveal that, but he's going to wait a couple verses. So you're going to have to wait a couple verses too. Uh, verse 9, let's just think about this a little bit more. When he's, he's emphasizing the permanence of Jesus' resurrection, we often think about the fact that Jesus is alive and that he rose, past tense, that he's currently living. But do you ever think about the fact that Jesus won't die again? <laughs> In Acts 13, 
Paul is giving this speech and he says that Jesus is raised from the dead no more to return to corruption. So the life he's living is not a life that will return back into the grave where he will, where he will decay. Or in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus reveals himself to the Apostle John and he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Never to die again. Jesus' resurrection life is permanent. And in verse 10, before he tells us why, why that matters, in verse 10, he's going to offer some evidence for that. So verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He starts with that word for, so that shows us how do I know that Christ's resurrection is permanent? Well, he says it's because first the nature of his death he says that the death is once for all, and then he says that it's the nature of his life. He says that Christ died, when he died, he died to sin just one time for all. As the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus' death means that there are no deaths left to die. His death is sufficient to cover the sins of every human. Jesus paid it all. So think about that. For Christ to die again, then, would assume that his atonement is incomplete. It would assume that it wasn't enough. If he died again as the perfect Lamb of God, that would mean there's something lacking in the first one. That's what Paul's saying. For the death he died to sin once for all. That's how I know he won't die again. But he also says it's not just the nature of his death, but also the nature of his life. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus' new life is a God-word life, a life of new and glorious, indestructible, to-God life. So that's how we know that Christ won't die again. And then finally, we get to verse 11, and here's our last verse in our passage. Why is Paul talking about the permanent resurrection? So, in light of the fact that Christ cannot die again, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you, in the same way that Christ cannot redie, so we must not act like we are still part of the old self. He says that we must consider ourselves to be something. We must reckon that ourselves, think of ourselves in this particular way. This is, uh, at further conference, Andy mentioned, Andy Gleiser mentioned this as he was speaking a few weeks ago, that this is the first imperative command in the book of Romans. That's pretty crazy that after six chapters, this is the first time he's saying, here's a direct command to you and direct exhortation. And what is it? So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's logic is, as Christ cannot die again and re-enter his pre-resurrection state so we must recognize, consider, reckon that we too cannot exit the new life God has given us. Our new life is permanent. It's secure. And by implication, we need to live like it. As ridiculous as it is to think that the awesome, glorious Christ could get back on the cross, that's how ridiculous it is for us to excuse sin in our, new, in our lives when we have new life. It is as utterly absurd to think that Christ's resurrection could be reversed as it is for us to live like we are still slaves of sin. 
So may we not ignore the new life that has flooded into us because of Jesus Christ. So this morning we've spun out this text all from, or Paul's really spun out this text from verse 2. Shall we continue in sin? No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying that our new identity means that we can't continue to live in sin. So why not make excuses for sin? Well, because baptism demonstrates new life. Crucifixion dismantles old life. Resurrection demands new life. I appreciated last week, Pastor Sweat was reminding us of some of the amazing things God has done for our church. He was referencing how a few years ago, uh, um, you can go ahead and change that slide to the next one, thank you, uh, how a few years ago, um, we had the, the sale of the land that, that, uh, that erased the, the debt we had. And just put yourself back there for a moment. I'd like to, to play off that for a minute. Every month, our church was paying off that debt, trying to, seemingly insurmountably. Every month, another check written. Until finally, the land sold, and that slate was wiped clean, right? No more, no more debts to pay. Now, imagine that you are our finance person, and the banker knocks on your door. Maybe you are our finance person. And the banker knocks on your door after and, and says, hey, um, where's our monthly check? It, it, it's a weird illustration, I know, but we, we got to go with it. That's what comes when I'm preaching, some bizarre illustration sometimes. But he says, Where, where's our monthly check? And you say, well, here's, here's the proof that we don't owe you anything. Our slate's clear. That's what you should do, right? What would be the really bad choice to do? Oh, oh, you want more money? Okay, here you go. <laughs> that would be crazy, right? It would also be crazy, or at least maybe a little bit better, but to just kind of, oh, oh, that's weird. Okay, I'm going to close the door and go hide in the corner. Man, maybe we do owe them more money, despite what you have right there that says your, your slate's clean. Both of those would be a bizarre response to an already bizarre situation, granted. What should you do? You should look that person in the face and graciously <laughs> say, I am dead to you. <laughs> I live in a new free way of life. And don't miss this. Our relationship to each other has been fundamentally transformed. So when sin comes knocking on your door, certainly don't welcome him in. Don't say, yeah, okay, come on in. But also don't just hide in the corner and say, oh, I'm going to try to say no to sin. I'm going to just try to hope that he can't break down the door. No. He has no claim on you as a Christian. That approach to, to fighting sin is doomed for failure. Paul says there's an initial step to fighting sin. You see, next week we're going to get into a little bit more about what that fighting sin looks like. It's going to talk about don't let sin reign in your mortal body. But this week, we're just focusing on the fact that Paul says the first thing you need to do is consider yourself dead to sin, alive to a new God-centric way of life. Your relationship to sin has been fundamentally changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, in spite of that, we find ourselves every week struggling with sin. And I just ask you as we wrap up here, what excuses for sin will you be tempted to make this week? I'm really tired. I can't help but looking at that explicit website. I'm hungry. Therefore, I'll probably snap at my spouse, my kids, my siblings. Maybe you'll minimize sin. It's not actually that bad. It was just a little gossip. It's just a small lie. 
Maybe you dismiss sin. Well, I'm not being arrogant. I'm just being confident. I'm not being proud. I'm just right. Or, as we've been mentioning today, maybe you say, I know I probably shouldn't, but God will forgive me anyway. When you are tempted by these excuses, I encourage you to identify them for what they are. Excuses. Now, if you're hungry, get some food. (laughs) If you're tired, get a nap. But, at the end of the day, even those kinds of things don't excuse the sin in our life. So when you're tempted with excuses, identify them for what they are, and then, as Paul encourages us to do, consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Say, Lord, you have said, because I've trusted in you as my Savior, I I only trust in Christ. It's all what he's done. Because of that, this temptation, I don't have to give in to this. Through your grace, I can have success here because I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. May that characterize our life this week. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. There's much more that could be said. Lord, I pray that you would make, that your spirit would take these words and plant them in us. That when we wake up tomorrow or when we're tempted by sin tonight, we wouldn't just forget this and throw it out the window. But I pray that even as you've been working on me this week, I pray that you'd work on all of us this week. That you would help us, Lord, to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. Show us, help us to understand better what that means, and by your Spirit's power, help us to better live that out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.